Rami's Age Show, interviewing interesting people so people can learn interesting things. Here is your host, Rami Zaid. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Rami Zaid Show, where I interview interesting people so people can learn interesting things. After about a six-month pause from doing this podcast, I am back. Everyone needs a break once in a while, and I needed a break too. As the Italians say, metri insieme la mia merda, or get my shit together. <laughs> my guest today is athlete, author, and activist April Zilg. In the world of water sports, one stands above the rest, and I mean that literally. That is stand-up paddleboarding, or sup for short. I'm talking to a sub champion today, but April is so much more. We discuss her journey as well as entrepreneurship with April's company, The Athlete Agenda. Listeners, I hope you enjoy my conversation with April Zilk. This episode is brought to you by Cleanse On The Go. As potential sponsors approached me to advertise on my podcast this past year, I made a conscious decision to only bring on sponsors I absolutely believe in. And Cleanse On The Go is just that. A cleanse for me had nothing to do with weight loss, although it does that as well if that's what you're looking for, but more of a mental reset. I love the two-day cleanse option they have, but you have the choice of either a one, two, or three-day option to cater to your needs and wants. The beauty of Cleanse On The Go is its mobility. As most of my loyal listeners know, I absolutely promote a healthy eating and exercise lifestyle, but I'm a single dad, two kids, working 24-7, so to say I'm a bit busy is a ludicrous understatement. Cleanse on the go is super easy to use. They're just small packets you mix with water. These small packets can fit easily into purses or pockets and are great for travelers, busy lifestyles, or embarrassingly lazy lifestyles if that is you. As a listener to the Rami Zaid Show, you can get 17% off your order if you go to their website. It's simply cleanseonthego.com, one word. Pick the cleanse you want, and under discount code, just type in my first name, Rami, R-O-M-Y, and you'll receive 17% off. Do it. You'll love it. Now let's get back to the Rami Zaid Show. April Zilg, welcome to the Rami Zaid Show. Hi, Rami. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. I should say SUP. Listeners, SUP stands for Stand Up Paddleboarding, and April is a SUP rock star and champion. And uh, I chuckle a little bit. My kids, they're 12 and 10, almost 13, 11. That's how they say hi to me is SUP, Dad. But for the, the purposes of today's conversation, SUP is Stand Up Paddleboarding. And April, we'll get into SUP, entrepreneurship, the athlete agenda, and more in this conversation. But an interesting fact about you, April, is that after you finished your degree at the University of North Carolina in Wilmington, you worked as a seahorse breeder in an aquarium for three years. And I found that fascinating. I can tell you, I've never talked to a former seahorse breeder in my lifetime, but I would love for you to talk about how you got into seahorse breeding. Yeah. Who knows? Uh, The universe just brought me there. It was my first job after my bachelor's degree. I got lucky. It's like every marine biologist's degree student's dream to get a a job right out of college, especially one where you're, you're very interactive with real animals. And I 
got the technician slot at my local aquarium and was assigned like the big tank where I got to scuba dive in the tank and like scrub the the walls with a toothbrush, which that sounds like horrible work, but I loved it, right? I'm like, oh, I get to scuba dive in a giant aquarium tank and scrub fish poop off walls with a tiny toothbrush. Sounds like a dream to me. Yeah, I love it. I was living the life. In addition to like the large exhibit I was assigned to, so I didn't choose, but I was assigned to the seahorse exhibit as well. So when I got the assignment, It came with all of the holding tanks. And because a lot of seahorses are threatened and you don't want to take them out of the wild, it's important for the aquarium to breed them in-house to keep the aquatic display of seahorses running. So yeah, I had like the, I called it the berry white tank where I would put the adult males and females in and it's so adorable. They wake up every morning. So they are monogamous. They form a a pair, a bond with their mate and they wake up every morning and the male and the female that have paired, they dance together to like reaffirm that, that bond. And if the male isn't currently with baby, then he will open his pouch like really big. So the males are the ones that get pregnant and the females deposit the eggs inside the male's belly during the dance. So if there's nothing in there, he opens, it looks like an old lady, you know, with those giant purses and they're like, here, I've got everything inside. (laughs) If you can envision like somebody opening a giant bag, that's what the male's pouch looks like. And he's kind of saying, hey, baby, look how big my giant pouch is. Don't you want to put some eggs in there? And the the female goes, oh, my God, that's huge. Yes, (laughs) let's do this right now. (laughs) I love it. So she puts her eggs in there. And about 30 days later, the male is very large. And I would move them over to the birthing tanks where... They give birth. It's as violent as, (laughs) I don't know, there's babies shooting out everywhere. And then moved them back into the the adult tank and reared the babies, fed them teeny tiny food until they were full-size seahorses. And that was an amazing three years. That's great. I love that we got hot and heavy right away with seahorse breeding. I know. (laughs) So I wanted to start back in the, the little bit of research I did on seahorse breeding, which was not much, but... Tell me about that dance because when I was looking up the that whole ritual, some have said it's like the most beautiful thing that they do this dance and they intertwine their tails. But can you tell me a little bit more about that? They do. They lock tails and they spin in a circle and they like lift their heads up and kind of make their clicking sound. It's a sound they make when they eat as well. But it is. It's just it's adorable that they do it every morning, just dancing, just hanging out. That's awesome. And so that that was three years or so, you said? Yeah. It wasn't official with the aquarium, but when people asked me what my job title was, I always said sexpert. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Thanks for sharing that. So April, with each and every show that I do at the beginning, I ask my guests a very standard question, and that's how they start their day. A lot of feedback from listeners afterwards is very positive on listening to different people like yourself on how they start their day. So I'd love to know, April, do you have a set routine? Is it a hot mess? Is it somewhere in between? How do you start your day? I am very lenient with myself in the mornings, but it's definitely, I would call it a routine. I do not, 90% of the time, I don't need an alarm. I'm a, a very naturally early riser. So I'll naturally wake sometime between 5 and 6 a.m. And again, because I 
I'm a solo entrepreneur and I'm the only one that has to get any work done. Like if I, if I'm not to work on time, it's like, it's just me. So that allows me as an athlete, if I need extra time to sleep and my body is asking for extra time for recovery, I'm allowed to take that. We had the U.S. Open of SUP last weekend. And I think yesterday was the like the first day I had, I had gotten somewhere where I was comfortable and could sleep. And it was my, my energy levels were coming down after like this major race. And I slept all the way to 715. Oh my goodness. I know. But my Garmin body battery came up to a hundred. It hasn't been at 100 in like three, four weeks over a month. So just not having an alarm set and waking up when my body indicates that it's ready and not rushing it, like always just letting that sleep and that recovery come first as an athlete. That's my priority. But once I'm awake, the first thing I do is boil my hot water. I'm a coffee drinker and it would be hard to convince me. Otherwise I have tried the no coffee before I've done green tea. I just, you know what, if I'm an addict, I'm an addict to coffee. I just, it is. After coffee, I usually sit on my front porch. I'm at my friend Carol's now for another race, but now I'm on her front porch where I sit and I enjoy my coffee with the morning sunlight because that's the best time of day to be exposed to the sun's rays. It's not as damaging and it helps me as an athlete as well, get my vitamin D really pumping and producing, which I need a lot of. I have to supplement vitamin D, but I try to get as much naturally as humanly possible. Then I eat first breakfast, then I do first workout, then I eat second breakfast, and then I sit down to do like work on my computer. Now, being an early, I'm an early riser too. Does that mean you're going to bed super early also, or are you a night owl? No, I'm definitely not a night owl. My bedtime is embarrassingly early, usually before, yeah, before 9 p.m. Yeah, I'm on that same train. Anything after nine, I, I, I'm not productive. So it's like, I might as well just go to bed. Well, especially if I'm doing two workouts a day, like I don't have any energy left at the end of the day. If I needed more energy, I guess I could eat more food and have more energy. I could take more energy in to get more energy out. But goodness, I would, I would literally be eating all day. I mean, I eat, I eat a lot. So the thought of eating more to have more energy to stay up later is very daunting. I don't think my digestive system would like me very much. Oh, that's funny. Born in North Carolina and you found paddleboarding, I believe in 2011. So a little bit over a decade ago. What was funny is I had just assumed I was reading up on you, April. And like I said, we'll get into how much of a rock star you truly are. But I just assume you were always this super athlete. And I have heard couch potato in a few different articles and would love to know couch potato to finding paddleboarding in 2011. Can you tell me about that? And actually, is that true? It is completely true. Actually, I had a, a health scare and I decided I realized that I needed something to do, a physical hobby, an activity that would just get me off my couch and make me healthier. And I tried running. And I, who wants to do that? Honestly, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> I run now. I actually do enjoy running now, but man, when I started, I just, ooh, I couldn't motivate. I couldn't rally. That wasn't going to be the activity for me. And I bought like two plastic kayaks and that was great. I loved being out on the water. Obviously as a marine biologist, that was something where I was getting physical activity, but I was, I was enjoying myself because I would identify different plants and animals that I saw while I was out there. But loading those like giant 40 pound plastic 
kayaks was just, that was a nightmare as well. And it wasn't until I tried stand up paddling for the first time. It was like, it's just an oversized surfboard. It was really light. It was really maneuverable, super easy to load and offload. And I was standing, I was standing up on the water. So there was this whole extra fitness aspect of balance. And then I could see down into the water as well. So I was actually seeing more wildlife and up above, like my head would be up above the marshes. So I could see further than when I was sitting in the kayak. So the vantage point was vastly improved. The the fitness aspect of it was improved. And I just, I tried the first time. I just, this, this is it. Like, this is absolutely what I want to be doing. But at the time it was just for fitness. It was just for personal hobby because I, I just didn't want to be unhealthy anymore. It went from hobby to profession, but can you tell me a little bit about your first race? Yeah. So I tried stand up paddling for the first time on a Saturday in Florida. I got home Monday and I found a used board on a Tuesday. I came home. I'm pretty sure it was a tandem surfboard. I actually don't even think it was a stand-up paddleboard. I think the guy lied to me because it was really hard to stand on. So wherever you are, guy, <laughs> I don't know. We'll find you, guy. I'm sure he's listening. I'm sure I, he is. I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> it actually made me a better paddler in the long run. So it's funny. Got a board on a Tuesday. I went out that weekend, you know, a little bit throughout the week. So I had been on my board between five and 10 times. And I saw this poster for the Carolina Cup. It said, stand up paddleboard race in the coffee shop after one of my paddles one day in Wrightsville Beach. And I went, oh my goodness, people like gather and like race these things. That's awesome. I had no idea it was even a thing. And I was like, man, yeah, I'm moving pretty fast in the marsh with the tide. Um, <laughs> And I said, I'm going to sign up. So they had a three mile, a six mile and a 12 mile race. I realized that the 12 mile was probably completely out of my, my ability levels. But for some reason, I thought the six mile sounded like the middle ground. I assumed the three mile would be just uber recreational people. What was I though, right? I was uber recreational. <laughs> I, I had very little self-awareness at this point in my life. That's great so, though. It probably helped you. It's I know. Awesome. So I entered the six mile race and the gun went off and off went all the, the racers on these really long, really pointy boards. And there I was left on my little tandem surfboard in their dust with my paddle backwards. And I didn't even finish the race. I pulled Wait, the in. The paddle was backwards? The paddle was backwards. And you had no idea? Nope. Oh, awesome. <laughs> yeah. I okay. couldn't have looked more ridiculous at this race than I did. And I had the worst time. That was like the worst three miles of my life. Just sitting there, cursing at myself, cursing at the wind, not knowing my paddle was backwards, thinking I sucked at life, not knowing that they, you know, the other racers took lessons and trained and had specialized equipment. So I pulled in at the three mile mark. I, I DNF'd. I was absolutely in last place. Like there was no one even near me. I was so far back. They actually thought I was part of the three mile race when I pulled right, in. Right. So, <laughs> you know, and I said, wow, that was, that was like this really eye opening experience, but paddling was the only thing that I had ever found that I really liked. And so, you know, I had this moment where like, that was a huge blow to like the ego and my self-worth and everything. Right. It's like, I stuck at this, but it's the only thing I like. I kind of suck at everything. So if I don't stick with something that I really like, then, you know, what does that mean for the rest of my life? 
Like, do I always just the second I suck at something run away, even if I like it? So I decided to take a lesson, ask some people about technique and how to train. I knew nothing about training, like base miles, uh, intervals, all of that was just, you could have been speaking French, like, and I, I just wouldn't understand. I went by the local shop, got advice on what equipment to use. They taught me how to hold my paddle not backwards. Made a really big difference. That's a good, that's a good I start. I know, yeah. it was a good start. And I entered that same race the next year. I was like, okay, I'm going to go back. I'm going to finish the six-mile race. And I didn't just finish it, but I, I was second overall in the entire Incredible. race. Incredible, in one year? In one year. And that's kind of like, I actually have these really freakishly long arms, which help. But it was this moment where I was like, wow, if I can do that in one year, like how far can I take this? And that was when I kind of decided to, to go all in on paddling. That is awesome. And I believe it was a couple of years after that is when things really started kicking in. 2014, you started winning a bunch of events. Can you take me through, I guess, 14 to maybe 15, 16? You started really getting your medals uh, over your neck, which is awesome. Yeah. The early years were slow. Again, I didn't have a coach, so I didn't have any training plans. I was still really self-taught for a lot of aspects of paddling. And in hindsight, I probably should have afforded coaching or assistance. I, I could have improved much quicker, but I back to that ego and the perceived inability to afford help. But that was okay. Like what? No mud, no lotus. So I just started reading a ton of books on the topic about training and physiology. And that all did start coming together in like 2014 and 15. I think I'd started, I built up enough of a base. And before that, I didn't really follow a training plan or anything. I just kind of paddled. And if my, my focus had been a little clearer before, you want to say you could have improved faster, but maybe, I don't know, maybe I couldn't have, maybe this is all, this is, that's all I had. You said something, April, you said the perceived inability to afford help. Could you expand a little bit about that? I say that because I interview entrepreneurs, athletes, and everything in between and a few have said something alluding to the same thing. And I want you to just expand a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, a good coach or, you know, a training plan, it's expensive. And you don't see it necessarily as investing in yourself that early on, especially when you're young. You just see the, the cost and you're very cost averse, especially if you, you don't have that kind of income. So if you're, you're already kind of scrapping you know, to get by and I guess scraping to get by and not really just flush with cash. You kind of have this more poverty mindset. It wasn't, oh, I have the the funding or like, I'm going to hire the best coach. Like, this is what I want to do with my life. I better get a good coach so that I can ensure success and invest in myself. It was, it was definitely a, a more fight or flight kind of sympathetic response. Like where I was, I'm well, I'm going to fight to get this. I don't have enough money, and but I'll show them and I'll figure it out, which can be, it's good and bad, right? Because it forces you to get creative. And I did have to read a lot of books and I, and I learned a ton. But at the same time, I think paying for a mentor to guide me to which books, even like where to look next, could have been valuable just to streamline the process. 
with that being said, and I still know people who can't afford things like that. So I, that, that is part of my athlete agenda community is I've got like the $5 a month tier. So hopefully like I'm trying to provide for people who are in that same mindset that I was in. It's like, you don't think you can afford a guide. So I was like, I was like, I'll, I'll at least tell you what books to read. I mean, I'm not going to coach you, but I'll, I'll be like, Hey, look here next, look here yeah, next yeah, yeah. to streamline the process. And we will get to the athlete agenda because I took a look at that and I think it's awesome. But I, I do want to stay on your winning because in 2018, 2019, it looked like things really, really picked up. One gold at Pan American Surfing Games, like you said, second at Carolina Cup, Graveyard Sub, 2019, downwind. I mean, there's all these events and awards that you just started piling up. With that, what I think is the most awesome is you mentioned a few minutes ago this Carolina cup. And I think that was in 2011. You're like, Oh, this is pretty cool. And now you've won back to back. You just won your second one, what, four weeks ago or something like that, which I think is incredible. So you you look back in one decade from a backwards paddle, not really knowing what you're doing. And all of a sudden you're a back to back champion on this Carolina cup. What I want to know is I've heard this is absolutely grueling. And I want to know, about this race, the Carolina Cup, I think they call it the graveyard race, right? Can you tell the listeners a little bit about that? Because it sounds absolutely horrendous to me. (laughs) It sounds so hard. (laughs) It is. So the graveyard race, like the Carolina Cup, the thing that I was aspiring to, it's not the six mile intermediate race that I started on. It is a 13.2, like half marathon distance. And depending on the year with the tide and the way the sandbars have shifted, it's anywhere between like 12.8 and 13 and a half miles. And that depends on the line you select as an athlete as well. So it's a beach start and a beach finish. So you're, you're lined up oceanside in the sand. They start the horn and you charge running out through the surf as fast as you possibly can. How many people, I mean, how many people are in this event when you're sprinting out there's hundreds or? It depends on the year. So at his peak year, there were hundreds. So back in like yeah, the 2015, 2016 timeframe. And since then, they have intentionally made the starts a little bit smaller by separating out the men's, the women's, the prone and the outrigger races. So when the race was newer, it was a mass start, which was insane. But as the the race has kind of afforded more international attention and become like one of the top events in the stand-up paddling world, they realize the importance of a fair start for each division. So gone are the days of the insane mass start. And Got it. But either way, I just want so, to yeah. get a picture for the listeners <laughs> on you taking off. So, okay, you take off. Go ahead, because I interrupted you. Yeah, no, you're fine. It, we have about 20 women, and you you charge through the breaking waves, and you're trying to stand up. So these waves are like breaking on the beach. You either have to jump over them, paddle over them, get over them, however you can get over them, and then you're in the ocean. And at that point, you're trying to work with the ocean to try to catch these little, like there's little bumps out in the water, and that's where the discipline of downwind paddling comes in. It's like a whole niche within paddle, like paddling outriggers and stand-up paddle boards, where you're essentially learning how to paddle hard, catch one of these open ocean swells. It's not breaking like you would catch with a surfboard, but because the boards are longer, they can ride these these non-breaking waves. 
So that like four miles of the course is all about like finding the ocean energy and trying to conserve and ride these little bumps. So like open ocean surfing, trying not to paddle as hard. And then the hardest part of the race comes up really quick and it's called Mason's Inlet. And there's these sandbars everywhere. So all the waves that you've been riding out in the open ocean, you're now making a left turn and riding them in towards shore. But there's a little inlet there that you have to get in. And there's sandbars everywhere. And if you run your fin aground, you run the nose of the board into the sand, you could tombstone, any number of things could go wrong. You could be parallel to a wave and it'll just barrel roll you, flip you right over. And if you wind up in water that's too deep to paddle through, you have to move laterally and walk. Like you can't walk forward. You can't go over the bar and get into deeper water because it's a paddle race. You have to go laterally. You can't make forward progression on the course. So you have to find that deep water. So now you have to surf like a, a normal surfing board style. So you're, you're going to surf a wave in, navigating the sandbars, trying to clear all of those. And then comes the seven mile grind in current and wind and all of that on the backside through the intercoastal waterway. So it's like a flat water race with just various conditions, eddies. The ability to read water really comes into play on that backside there, where whether you stay out in the middle, whether you're with or against the current, if you want to hug the sides to get out of current, there's all these different strategies. And so the field kind of just like disperses, picking different, like, I think I'm going to be faster over here. So, and then of course, like usually the lead pack is in like a Tour de France style draft train because it's 15% easier for like the people in the back. And so there's strategic partnerships that are formed on the course where you work together to either reel someone in or or make a a bigger gap on the remainder. And those people stay together. But other than that, you see this this small outside people like, no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to go with the main lead draft pack. And sometimes it pays off and, and sometimes it doesn't. But after that, you go out the second jettied inlet, which is not as treacherous as the first because it's got the the jetty walls. So there's no breaking waves, but there's a lot of water moving through there. One more mile back in that, that ocean bump, and then you have to surf your board to the beach at the finish. And I can't tell you how many races in like the last decade, you're racing for like 10, 13 miles, and it comes down to who caught a wave in like the last few seconds. Well, I would die doing that. I have to ask you then, I mean, you've you've won back to back, so I assume you're strong at everything, but do you, is there something in that race, April, that sets you apart from, from the others? Do you feel? I know how to read water pretty well. And that is what made the difference in 2021. I don't live there anymore, but I know the area really well and understanding like the way the tide was working and where some eddies were and where some countercurrents were, I had, I actually didn't think, I was sitting way back in fourth place. The other women had a commanding lead on me. And then they went straight into an area of very strong current. And I went hard left and used the countercurrents to kind of like shift my way across a, a very tidally influenced inlet. And by the time my move was done and their move was done. I went from very, very far forth to right next to first and second. And I was like, oh, wow, that was really cool. <laughs> like I had this moment where I was like, that was neat. I've got 10 minutes left in this race. I should go now. And I did. I went harder than I've ever gone before. <laughs> I was just like, oh, wait, this is really cool. <laughs> like this, this is my moment. 
And it was the 10 year anniversary of the first race too. Cause I can't even tell you how horrible my self-talk was when I was in fourth on the 10 year anniversary of this race. And I just, I thought that it was finally going to be my year. And there I'm just sitting way, way in back. And I was like, man, I suck at this. Like, why have I dedicated my life to this? This is horrible. <laughs> and then in the last moment, like, just zoop, zoop, zoop. I, I I went up this eddy and this counter current. I was like, oh my goodness, did that just happen? So it was really cool. Congrats on on back to back, April. That is absolutely amazing. And even hearing you describe the race, it's even more amazing how grueling that thing is. No, everybody should try it though. It's fun to be outside and be on the water. <laughs> yeah, I'll try it if you're behind me, ready to save me. <laughs> I'm going to switch gears a little bit because one one thing, this was interesting, April, I found ADS, uh, aerobic deficiency syndrome. Um, would love for you to talk a little bit about that. Uh, first, what it is for the listeners and then how it affected you and how you overcome it. Yeah. So as I mentioned before, I didn't really have like a coach. I purchased some like bulk online training plans back in the day, but I I didn't have anyone to help me navigate or interpret what those training plans meant, what certain things would feel like. And so I was just going through the motions. So an eight minute interval, that means go as hard as you can for eight minutes, right? (laughs) A two minute interval, that means go as hard as you can for two minutes, right? No, that is all completely wrong. And I didn't know that. Like, I didn't understand the importance of doing the slower, easier work. And I had subscribed. I was in like a CrossFit gym. And everything I had done since I was very young was all about high intensity, right? Just like get in there, get your heart rate up. You know, if you're not like puking by the end of your workout, then you're doing it wrong. Go hard, go home. And that's just, that's what I thought everyone that beat me on every race course, I just, that's what I thought they were doing. I just thought they were training harder than me. And so I'd get in my own head and I'd go home after losing a race. Cause I mean, yeah, I pretty much lost everything for 10 years. Right. Like, you know, and I was like, my goodness, like I still suck at this. I better go home and I got to train even harder. I got to train even harder, which it was this negative feedback loop. So I kept going home and I kept training harder And what I didn't realize I was doing was I was training my fast twitch, my fast oxidative fibers, and I was training kind of my anaerobic system in that every time I went out by going out too hard, by not even like warming up slowly, by just straight to whatever level it was I was going to paddle at that day, I would grossly overshoot the aerobic threshold and essentially inject lactic acid into my muscles, lactate. So when you, you know, you just burst, you go above the aerobic threshold means you're just putting more, you're utilizing more glucose and therefore putting more lactic acid into the muscles, which the fast twitch, the fast oxidative fibers want. Lactic acid gets its bad rap, right? But it's not, it's not really what's causing you to slow down. Lactic acid is fuel. It's muscle fuel. It's used to generate ATP. So when I was going out too hard, too fast. Lactic acid would come out in my body and my body would use that fuel first. It's going to burn through that first. By never going slow, by never warming up slow and easy, by never working out in a state that was zero alactic, zero lactic acid, I never taught my body 
how to go at a decent speed, a respectable speed with purely, and I say purely aerobic metabolism, obviously it's always a blend, you know, to say it's purely aerobic would be a misnomer, but to teach my body to go at a respectable speed, utilizing mostly fat and oxygen. So, and again, that's using the slow oxidative fibers, a completely different like muscle fiber in each of my muscle groups. So what would happen is you go out really hard and fast on a race and you're like, you're keeping up for maybe even a mile or two, right? Like, but your heart rate is pinned. You have nowhere else to go. You're going as hard as you can. And all of a sudden the burn starts and you just start slowing down as everyone else pulls away. And when you slow down, your body's trying to fall back on and utilize aerobic metabolism. But if you've never trained that aerobic system, you slow down a lot and everybody else keeps going. When I started training my aerobic system, once I realized I was damaging my body by training too hard all the time, I really went back to the drawing board. And that was like the last thing. Like I tried everything, right? To, to be a better athlete. I tried everything, but going back and building just a big base of long, slow, very intentional aerobic work. I'm not saying that's what it is for everybody, but it certainly was for me, the thing that made the biggest difference. April, a typical week, what does your workout routine look like? Well, right now, because I'm kind of in the competition season, I'm just coming off two big races the last two weekends. And then I'm going into the Gorge Downwind Champs here in the next two weeks, a week and a half. And during the week, a lot of my workouts are aerobic because I'm getting enough anaerobic training and I'm get, I'm generating enough lactate and cortisol in my, in my weekend races that during the week, I need to be flushing and doing and maintaining my aerobic system because because I've trained so hard for so long and so fast and like overtraining for so long, it's a little like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, where if I do too much high intensity training, I will very quickly lapse back into being aerobically deficient. My aerobic system can detrain. So during the week, I have to make sure that I'm really vigilant and dedicated to that slower aerobic recovery work because that's what's pumping oxygen to my muscles, ridding the waste from the race efforts, burning fat, like making my body efficient, increasing my mitochondrial health and my mitochondrial density, things that make me a healthy human. Whereas before when I had uh, aerobic deficiency and essentially every time I went out to train, I would just be dumping cortisol into my body. I actually got a HPA axis. That's the hypothalamus pituitary axis dysfunction where like my cortisol levels were through the roof. My hormones were completely off balance and, and out of whack. I was exhausted all the time, tired going into races. Whereas now focusing more on that aerobic system, I realized that utilizing fat and oxygen as fuel doesn't release as much cortisol. You actually are a healthier athlete. Uh, you have more energy and I just, I can't say enough about less cortisol. That's a good thing. I exist exaggerating to make a point. Do you switch it up and do the yoga or go do weight training or something like that? Or is it all really on the paddle? I definitely switch it up. So right now I just went from a block of stand up paddle training. I'm switching over into my outrigger canoe, which is seated. So I do a lot of running now. So I run to keep the aerobic enzymes uh, in my legs developed, you know, increased capillarization of my legs so that while I'm 
even though I'm seated paddling, my body could util- can still utilize the the infrastructure that I've built running in my legs to handle metabolic byproducts of going hard in a race, even if I'm seated. I definitely weight lift. I'm a huge proponent. I believe in lifting heavy, very heavy, between 85 and 95% of your one rep max for small repetitions, never to failure. As a paddler, I don't want to lift failure because lifting to failure elicits a hypertrophy response. And we don't want to weigh more. We do not want to increase like the diameter of our muscle fibers and be heavier in a, a craft that power to weight ratio and like displacement matters. So I do maximum strength where I'm lifting an incredibly heavy, heavy weight, but I'm stopping well before I'm tapped out. And I do a dedicated block of that every winter in the off season for eight weeks where I lift four times a week. But once I've got my numbers for the year, as long as I can get into a gym or get behind a weight rack once every two weeks, I can maintain that that ability. And it's just to keep that neurological connection fresh because weightlifting for paddlers isn't about, it's not about like, Oh, how much can I lift? Like how strong I am? It has nothing to do. It's got this, like, I don't know that people have this misconception about strength work. Like it's this like meathead thing, but it it's about the brain and body connection. I lift heavy because it teaches my brain, how to recruit more muscle fibers. I'm getting a higher neurological recruitment every stroke of my paddle than someone who does not lift. So I know what it feels like to put my blade in the water and feel a heavy catch. But if you've only ever had a catch, like a a paddle stroke in the water, that's as heavy as you know what it feels like. So if I can lift heavy in the gym, I could, in theory, paddle even heavier. Right. So you, you, you kind of like change your mind. Like you envision picking up that five pound weight at the gym. Yeah. You know, I can, I can wave it all around. That's my blade going through the water fast. Right. If I put that down mentally and I pick up the 50 pound weight at the gym, I can't wave it around so fast. And so when I paddle, I try to envision my paddle stroke being more like the 50 pound weight and less like the five pound weight. So by, by having that like neurological connection, like just that, that's training, right? Like that's, oh, I can find that same engagement on the water. I cannot say enough good things about weightlifting and not just that, but for men and women, hormonal balance is greatly improved by lifting heavy. And then women traditionally have had issues with bone density, lifting heavy regularly sends the body the signal that the bones need to be dense and strong. So I think everyone should have a heavy weightlifting program as part of their protocol, even if you're like not an athlete, like just a general fitness person. Are you also, April, are you food intake? You mentioned first breakfast workout, second breakfast, right? Are you tracking that as well since you're so intense on the training aspect? I try to eat more intuitively. I hate tracking calories. I'm like, that's something I have never been able to be disciplined with, but I do have to do regular check-ins. So I tend towards under eating actually. And I don't know if that has something to do with like an epigenetic conditioning from, from my mother, from family. I don't know that I produce enough leptin or, you know, the hunger hormone or it's ghrelin, sorry. So when I do take the time to track my calories, I usually find that I'm, I'm grossly underfed. So I do every couple of months, 
I use my fitness pal, the free fitness tracker. And I just track my calories for a few days to see how I'm doing. Like, Hey, here's what I would normally eat in a day. I don't even, I just do it for one full week. And I look back and I go either, Oh, wow. I, I need to add one extra meal a day. Like I really have to, or Hey, I'm doing pretty good. Like, so I just check in with myself regularly, but I, again, I just cannot stand. Like I have enough to do. I cannot, I just don't have the time. Well, I have the time. I'm not taking my time to do that. So I've got like a really good rule of thumb though for food because I, I try to eat between 3000, 3,500 calories a day. Cause that's what I'm regularly burning with one long to two like shortish workouts a day. And luckily the, the Garmin does give me because of the all day heart rate, it tells me how many calories I burn in a day. So when I do those check-ins, I'm trying to match my caloric intake to what my estimated expenditure is. Everybody's like, oh, you know, you got to eat this much a day. Actually, you don't. I think following a strict plan where it's like, I eat 3,500 calories exactly every day. Well, no, I mean, I didn't burn 3,500 a day. Like, so if I only burn 2,000, I only need to eat 2,000. On race day, sometimes if I burn four to 5,000, you better believe I'm stopping at Whole Foods on the way home and grabbing like a ream of eight double chunk chocolate fudge cookies, because how else am I going to get a thousand calories in me like, and, and recover efficiently? Yes. I would love to somehow find a way to get a thousand calories of salad in me too. But I think having the cookies, it makes me feel good on race. Well, yeah. Why not? I, love I can it. burn, dude, my metabolism is so revved on race day. I can eat anything. Yeah. If, sure. if I ate those any other time of the week, I would feel so sick. But at that moment, like my body is like a furnace, like this hot, fire like does you throw anything in it and it's like torching it into into <laughs> energy it's insane oh that's awesome april tell the listeners about the athlete agenda what it's about yeah athlete agenda is it's my agenda to help everyone train a little bit more intuitively so just like i was talking about the calories where you just kind of do a check in the one thing that i've at least found to be very true across my last decade of, of seeking out being an athlete is when I take time to check in, write things down, set my intentions before and reflect on things when I, when I return is really been the game changer in my athletic performance. Yes, it, it is about the nutrition. It is about training the aerobic base. It's about all of those things, but I wouldn't know to dive deeper into whatever the, the next subject is if I didn't take time to write down what was going wrong or even what's going good. Because if you're already doing a ton of aerobic base work, but you're not like you're seeing a plateau and you're, you're keeping good records, then you wouldn't listen to this podcast and go, oh, I need to go do more aerobic base work, right? You would look back and say, oh, maybe it's strength work. Maybe it's high intensity work by keeping better records, you're able to really adjust your training and customize it, right? Without having a really expensive coach. So again, early in my, my career, when I didn't have, when I felt like I didn't have enough funding to pay for someone else to guide me, I actually could have gotten a lot further just tracking things in a journal, guiding myself. Like I said, the athlete agenda has spaces to set your goals, 
the SMART goals, about how you're going to measure them, how you're going to track them. We talk about quantitative versus qualitative goals. And then really just working backwards from this number you generate, you pick kind of a date and a, and a numeric goal that's measurable, and you're going to work towards it. And the Athlete Agenda has daily spreads which are undated by the way. So if, like if you're kind of OCD sometimes or, you know, like you're like, oh man, I feel like I missed all these, there's these blank days in a dated planner that you didn't get to. There's none of that. Just open it on the next day, write the date in and just keep trucking along because perfection is the thief of progress. Just get in there and, and do your best. But it, you know, it asks you to set the intention before you go out for your workout it asks for a daily reflection and kind of about your wins for the day. And it's got a spot for your subjective mood and metrics that you may be keeping track of. And that's actually like, that's the magic box right there. When you start writing things like springy and fresh and light and easy, you'll see these keywords in that box. That means your training's going really well. And then if you start seeing words like, flat and no motivation and tired and slow, that's a clue. Like that's your clue to look, okay, I need to be mindful. Why am I writing that I'm not feeling good? How's my calorie intake? Like that's check number one. Check number two, am I training too much? Am I training not enough? So like keeping your better records and having those, those guided prompts to like keep you on track and mindful of your, of what you're doing. It's my hope that we make some more intuitive athletes and people can break through some of their barriers and improve their performance without, without spending. Like I would try a, a journal first before you do like a giant coach. Cause then you have more to like a very expensive coach. You have more to show them too. Yeah. What I, what I like, you said perfection is the thief of progress. I'm going to remember that one. That was a Isn't good quote. It yeah, that's oh, awesome. Isn't it? I love I it. I can't tell you. I miss all these deadlines all the time because I was like waiting for something to be absolutely perfect. And I was like, I just know I got to start sending it's stuff. just got to go. I like it. They can find that. It's theathleteagenda.com, correct? Yeah, that's um, a little landing page I've set up. There's a thing for people to click and buy it or just get a free sample download of it. I think there's a link on there somewhere too to scope out that online community. That's just members.theathleteagenda.com. And that's growing. It's kind of a new thing, but it's we've got about 40 members in there. Everybody's a paddler right now. But my goal one day would be to have people from other sports as well jumping in and talking about food and building up their aerobic systems and just, Hey, you know, what's the next really cool book to read on, on this kind of training. So perfect. Well, yeah, listeners go to the athleteagenda.com and check it out. So April, I like to end my shows with a bunch of kind of fun, random rapid fire questions. Are you ready? I'm so ready. I'm so ready. <laughs> All right, let's go. The first one is my walk-up song in major league baseball. Players, when they come up to bat, have a walk-up song. Coming up to bat, getting ready. April, what would be your walk-up song? Okay, I have two answers. Okay. This is, this is very ahead. rapid fire of me. But I took an online quiz once as a teenager, and it said my theme song was Dancing Queen. <laughs> I disagree <laughs> wholeheartedly. Okay, I couldn't it. disagree more. But the internet said that that is my walk-up song. I feel like I want 
dude, it's so weird. I want something like really strong and like kind of badass. Not I like dancing queen, you mean? Not dancing queen. <laughs> okay, got but it. I, you know, I like the drum by it's or it's called drum by the siege. Yeah. Like that's a good that's a good walk up song, right? That sounds super cool. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That <laughs> like would be. It. I think I'll pick that, even though I'm sillier than that. Dancing Queen's <laughs> probably gonna take the win. <laughs> I like it. Next one. What is one thing, April, you do not mind spending money on? Books. Books. Nice. Everybody read. Read more books. Love it. When do you food. have a favorite right now? Oh my goodness. I, I have 12 favorite books. The two that helped me overcome my aerobic deficiency the most were Phil Maffetone's Big Book of Endurance Training and Racing. And then that just came out back in, I think 2019, is Training for the Uphill Athlete. It's put out by Patagonia Press. It's by Steve House and Scott Johnson. And I just, dude, those are two of the most amazing books for aerobic, making the case for developing your aerobic system. So yeah, because that's like a recent thing, but I love books. There's nothing in the world you can't know. If you take the time to read the books, you want to know more about nutrition, about training. I just uh, downloaded a book on digital organization to get like all my files and things because I was like, I'm not organized. And I was feeling really defeated. I was like, wait a minute. I know how to solve this problem. Books. Yeah. If you're not learning by default, you're getting worse as a person, I think 100%. Okay, next one. We already noted your perfection is the thief of progress quote, but do you have a favorite quote, April? Maybe that is it, but do you have a favorite quote that sticks with you? Yes, in the same vein as the books. So recently I I heard Sadhguru say something that just, it blew my mind and changed the way I I see life. And sadly, and my relationship with other people sometimes, he said, ignorance is karma. Hmm. So a lot of times, you know, people want to, I don't know, say that I'm different or like I, I've, I've been given some knowledge or like I know something they don't, like there's some advantage. And my answer is books. You can read everything I've read. I knew nothing 11 years ago. I knew absolutely nothing that I know now. But I read for at least 15 minutes a day. And if you're in a bad mood or you don't know something about medicine or plants or nutrition or working out, yeah, you might not know it tomorrow. It's not instant. There's, you're not going to know it tomorrow. But your ignorance, like if you're, you feel like you're just, the world's out to get you, you have bad luck all the time. You don't know anything. That's your karma because you're not picking out, up a book. Great answer. Love it. Next one. And I'm going to take away the water from you, which is probably really tough. But if you could pick a completely different profession, not water related, what would it be? And why? Gardener. A gardener. Gardener. I want to build a food forest. I'm so into like healing with 90% of what we need in life just grows from out of the dirt. And I just want to grow my own food and grow my own medicine. Dude, if society wasn't like it is, like April would be living in a van down by the river or like in a hut out in the woods with my little garden. Like you'd never see me again. But, you know, I have to play entrepreneur and athlete to like survive and function and have income. What is Well, you this? have to listen to a podcast once in a while too. I, mean, I know, come on. I do, I do. Come on. All right, next one. If you were given a free 60 second advertisement during the Super Bowl, Biggest audience you can have, right? And you have 60 seconds. What would you say in that advertisement? Or what would the commercial be? 
books. No, more books. <laughs> books. Just have someone reading for 60 seconds. Love no, it. I, yeah. I wouldn't even take the full 60 seconds. I'd just say like, read books, cut. Yeah, cut. Like, mic drop, mic drop. Got it. <laughs> Love that, it. No, yeah, I don't know. I wouldn't even sell my own athlete agenda. Isn't that sad? No. <laughs> it's not I'd sad. Like, I'd be like, oh, p- turn off the TV, pick up a book. Yeah, right. That's I love my that. mic drop. <laughs> Good. Okay. Next one. If you were stranded on an island and could pick any celebrity, dead or alive, Ooh. to be on that island with you, who would it be? Oh my goodness, that's really hard. I, I don't watch a lot of TV, so I don't. Oh man, Ryan Reynolds is really cute. Oh, there is you that, go. Is that, yeah, you go no, that route. My, my poor husband. No, yeah. <laughs> let me no. take that one back. That, yeah. Taking that back. <laughs> yeah, take Ryan there and talk about seahorse breeding for about five minutes. Dude, be fine. Yeah. Dude. <laughs> I, I have to take that one back. Okay. No, it, <laughs> I have to Got take it. that. <laughs> uh, like that was it. a Freudian slip. Um, <laughs> I like it. <laughs> All right, last one. Last one. I call this the ultimate dinner. There's no consequences tomorrow. And you could, this could be at a restaurant or this could be home or whatever, but what April is on your plate or plates and in the glass, if you'd like something in the glass. Uh, kombucha in the glass. Ooh. And I would just eat the same thing I eat every day. So two handfuls of leaves, one handful of carbs, one palm full of protein and one thumb of fat. Except if this is my last meal, I'm going to like the fat's yeah, the gonna be like an, av- yeah, yeah. an avocado, right? Like, okay. <laughs> so I'm gonna thumb it from here. That's my avocado thumb. And a big slice of chocolate cake with a vanilla ice cream scoop and some chocolate chips. Yeah. And that'll be it. There you go. Can't complain with that. April, this has been so much fun. This has been a great hour. And listeners, go check out the athlete agenda. Go follow April. I don't think, you know, these back-to-back wins, all these wins you're chalking up are not your last. You got a long career ahead of you. And not only that, but with the business that you started. And April, if there's anything you want to leave with the listeners, please go ahead. Oh, goodness. I can't. Just thank you for listening. And yeah, I, I appreciate you checking out the Athlete Agenda, maybe even finding me on Instagram or YouTube. I'm just... I'm just me, just an athlete who really likes paddling. And if you ever have questions about paddling or want to connect, I'm super responsive to messages, very inclusive. I'd be happy to answer any questions anyone ever has. Thank you very much, April. Cool. Thank you, Rami. Thanks again, listeners. And I hope you enjoyed that conversation with April Zill. You can find April on LinkedIn www.aprilzilg.org or her website, theathleteagenda.com. That's all one word. You can find me at my website, ramizade.com. That's R-O-M-Y-Z-E-I-D.com. Thanks again for listening, everyone. And I hope you all learned something interesting. Interesting.